Welcome to The Pharmacists Are In, a podcast made for pharmacists by pharmacists, hosted by John Papasturjo. John is a frontline community pharmacist owner, assistant professor at the School of Pharmacy at both the University of Toronto and University of Waterloo, and an internationally recognized speaker, author, and researcher. Today's guest is Hazem Elua, a clinical assistant professor at the Qatar University. Hazem runs an anticoagulation clinic in the hospital setting in Qatar. Building on his experience as a postdoctoral fellow studying pharmacogenetic guided dosing of warfarin at the University of Florida. Join John and Hazem as they discuss the current state of both community and clinical pharmacy practice and the campaign for a greater scope of practice in Qatar. They will keep you up to date on the current pharmacogenetic research being done on warfarin dosing, how pharmacogenetic clinics are implemented in Qatar and the future of pharmacist-run pharmacogenetic testing. Pull up a seat and let's get started. And we're here again for at the 78th World Congress of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences. A great opportunity to meet internationally renowned pharmacists. And I'm here today with Hazam Alawa from Qatar. Hazam, welcome. Thank you, John. Welcome. Um, glad to be here uh, at FIP. Yeah, FIP is always a great opportunity to kind of get it go out and about, I find there's a ton of value in the networking. You get to meet cool pharmacists doing interesting things. Generally, pharmacies like in your home country is almost like a bubble. You know everyone. And then you get out to FIP and literally there's a whole world out there of people doing great things. Sometimes it overlaps with what we're doing in our home countries. Otherwise, it doesn't. But the learning opportunities are endless. I mean, I mean Qatar is a place that I don't know anything about with respect to pharmacy practice. Uh, uh, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so uh, Qatar is a kind of a small country. We uh, population have uh, is about two and a half millions. Uh, about uh, half a million of them are Qatari nationals, and almost two millions of expats from all over the world. So it's more of an international community, if you will. And uh, practice there, it's a growing country. So there is a lot going on in the health sector as well as education research sector. So definitely there is a lot going on over there. And you are, I mean, we didn't really uh, even talk about what you do as a pharmacist. Community, hospital, what's your practice like? Uh, I'm currently a clinical assistant professor. I work primarily at Qatar University College of Pharmacy. I also am cross-appointed at one of the hospitals in Qatar. It's called Al-Wakra Hospital. And I go there about two days per week to run their anticoagulation clinic, as well as mentoring, um, supervising PharmD students and residents sometimes. Oh, that's awesome. So when I think pharmacy practice, I mean, I have this vision in, you know, in Canada of the community pharmacists in Qatar. Is it similar uh, or is it different? I mean, uh, what would you say? Uh, I would say the practice is maybe a little bit different than Canada and the States uh, in the sense that there is a, a main big umbrella of an institution called Hamad Medical uh, uh, Corporation. Uh, and basically under that um, big umbrella, there are like about seven hospitals. And then underneath these seven hospitals, which are primarily given like the secondary and tertiary care, but there are like a bunch of different primary health care centers. Um, and everybody who is a resident in Qatar, they do have coverage for health insurance. Okay. So basically, if they have any routine need, they would go to the designated primary health care center. Otherwise, they can go to the emergency department of any of these hospitals, depending on their need. So some of them are specialty hospitals. Like, for example, we have the heart hospital. Um, we have a cancer hospital called 
and triple CR, uh, and then some of them are general hospitals. Um, so uh, yes, it's a little bit different. So you get a script from the prescriber. Do you take it into a community pharmacy? Is that how it works? Uh, most of the time, if you get it in the hospital, you would uh, get it dispensed uh, from the outpatient pharmacy okay. of that hospital. If you get it from the primary healthcare center, you would dispense it in the, also the outpatient pharmacy in that uh, healthcare center. Uh, sometimes uh, you could interchange where you can get it. Sometimes uh, you, you are discharged from the hospital, but you can get it in your designated primary health care center for the convenience. But most of the times um, people don't get dispensed in private pharmacies or community pharmacies unless they uh, get the, that prescription in uh, more of a private uh, polyclinic or a physician office, if you okay. will. And, you know, the pharmacist's role, are they there primarily in the community to dispense or are they, are they providing health information, doing a therapeutic check? Like, I'm trying to get a sense for the scope itself. Um, again, it's, uh, it can be uh, very advanced when you go yeah. to the hospital and you do see a lot of clinical pharmacists and a big role in therapeutic interventions, um, you know, kind of rotating on the different floors and, and uh, intervening really proactively in a, a patient-centered sort of a healthcare system. Um, again, also, we do have a bunch of different, um, um, you know, collaborative care kind of practice uh, in primary healthcare centers as well as in some of these hospitals. When it comes to community pharmacies, this is where there is a little bit of a gap in the practice and you do see a need for advancement a little bit. Uh, it's coming up, but again, it's not to the same level where you may see in other countries like in Canada or United States where there's a lot of therapeutic intervention. It's primarily dispensing. You know, yeah, so I mean, this is one of the things I've kind of I've kind of learned. In some countries, there seems to be this, this uh, you know, shift between the, the, the hospital pharmacist and the community pharmacist. And I, I was joking with someone here. They said, well, I'm a clinical pharmacist. And I said, well, isn't every pharmacist a clinical pharmacist? But not necessarily. In some parts of the world, there is that. And I know you guys are doing, a, you know, making a big push to try to elevate that community pharmacist. And I see that trend in different parts, you know, uh, of the world. And I think um, it's a great thing because, you know, those community pharmacists are the ones that are seeing most of the patients, right? right. How about things like, would, we, would you see like vaccines or immunization be given in a, in a community uh, pharmacy? Still, this is one of the fights that we're actually going through trying to convince, uh, you know, like uh, the authorities and the different stakeholders that pharmacists can do this and can be, you know, like uh, providers of immunization, other sort of care but it still didn't happen yet because maybe there's not that much trust in the community pharmacies and community pharmacists. But uh, again, uh, we do see a lot of advancement happening in the hospital. For example, um, collaborative care, um, you know, anticoagulation uh, clinics managed by pharmacists. This is something that have happened in a, maybe about six years ago and it started with one hospital and now we have three hospitals that have pharmacists managed anticoagulation clinic. And that's how it starts. I think, you know, it, it, it may be the hospital pharmacist that pushed the scope, you know, forward and forward, but eventually it trickles out to the community as well. And it, you know, also starts with the students. I had an opportunity to give a lecture, I think, uh, via web link to, to one of your classes. And just by the types of questions, we were talking about innovative practice in Canada and whatnot, you could tell there's that appetite, right? And I think that's consistent. Pharmacy students all over the world, they have this appetite to to do more because they're being trained differently, right? Very true. You know, and they're not they're not waiting. Uh, you know, their their ultimate goal is not to fill scripts; it's to be you know a clinical practitioner. So I mean, stuff like this helps, man. These 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 big conferences, you get everyone out, see what everyone's doing, and I think uh, ultimately everyone's going to get there. It's just going to take uh, different times. Uh, 
I know, you know, one of the things that kind of brought us together is your interest in pharmacogenomics. I know that's yes. uh, close to my, uh, near and dear to me, and I do a lot of work in this area, and so do you, and uh, real value in, in being able to meet people like you, because you've really uh, kind of led in this area also. Yes, uh, I think it's all, it all started with my postdoctoral fellowship, which was a fellowship in pharmacogenomics at the University of Florida in the United States. And my main project was actually being uh, one of the investigators on the COAC study, which is, was a multi-site NIH-funded study looking at the effect of genetics in um, you know, um, pharmacogenetic-guided dozing of warfarin. And, um, uh, tr truthfully, it was a unique experience, uh, you know, being one of the investigators and, and uh, being a you know, research coordinator on that side. You get to see a lot into the clinical practice as well as how this integrates into the research area as well. So you're responsible for screening possible patients that are eligible for that study, as well recruiting them, do all the follow-up visits. So it brought me into the picture. I stayed there for about one year and then started also going into clinical practice in the United States in Georgia as um, anticoagulation clinical special phar pharmacist. Uh, and again, we brought Georgia as another site for that study. Mm -hmm. So I, I remained with that study for about three years. Uh, and indeed, we when I moved to Qatar as assistant professor, I tried to again, build on what I've already learned and my experience in pharmacogenetics and, and start to do a pharmacogenetic study in Qatari patients. As you all know that you know, like uh, it may differ from one population to the other. And this is one of the main things that is pharmacogenetics unique about is that it, it could be really different from one population to the other. You know, and uh, you know, the evidence is slowly starting to mount. We don't have a ton. I mean, uh, we, uh, we published the, kind of one of the first papers out of community pharmacy looking at, you know, a broad range of therapeutic areas. I know we, you're collaborating on a project with myself and some of the other uh, IPAC members here on on looking at uh, the genotype of patients on warfarin that are poorly controlled. So hopefully we'll find some correlation there as well. But I mean, you know, we're getting bits and pieces of this evidence. The reality is, and I don't know how you feel about this, if pharmacists don't take this role on, someone else is gonna take it from us. It's getting a lot of media attention. I mean, it's out there now. Um, what do you feel about that? Um, totally agree, cannot agree more. And it was one of the very first things that I did when I moved to Qatar is try to, uh, you know, get in one of the, my undergrad students projects is to have a survey into the different uh, clinicians, primarily physicians and pharmacists, and try to get the sense of how they feel about like their knowledge about pharmacogenetics, as well as their attitude of what should be the role of pharmacogenetics, who should be you know, like the, the type of practitioner who should get involved more. And surprisingly, physicians and pharmacists both agree that pharmacists are the best people uh, or like the best kind of practitioners that are equipped with the tools to get them more and more involved into that. And it's a, a whole area that we can intervene and we can get involved in right away. Yeah, and you know, you touched on this, this relationship with the physicians because early on, I remember starting to talk about it. The physicians, you know, they think it's interesting. They don't have a ton of training in this area either. So they're happy to let us champion it. My concern is if pharmacists adopt it too slowly, we're going to give it up, you know. And I, I really believe there's going to start being some reimbursement in this area because as the evidence comes out, hey, you know, are we helping with outcomes? I think so. And I, possibly the evidence will show that. 
are we saving dollars? I think we will as well, right? So yes, and um, I think also right now the practice has been changing in some countries like Canada and the United States, where they do have currently pharmacogenetic clinical services, and the, they are run by pharmacists. It's like on consultation basis, they would get reimbursed by by insurance companies. So definitely, it is a great opportunity, and we are well equipped because we are the expert in pharmacodynamics, pharmacokinetics, which is all about pharmacogenetics. Yeah, and we we're running a randomized trial now. I'm the lead investigator on it. We're actually blinded. First time I've ever done this, but it's funded by a third-party payer, an insurance company. Uh, you know, they've stayed, uh, you know, at arm's length of the study, but the reason they funded it is they want to see, hey, if we could show a positive outcome, these patients improve, we get them off disability claims, they're going to save money, eh? So I think uh, this will be important. If we're able to you know, get a positive outcome, I, I really believe we're going to start to see reimbursement in this space almost immediately. But we got to show the evidence. And historically, pharmacists haven't been good, especially community pharmacists, at documenting what they're doing, showing the value. We all know anecdotally, we do great work, we work in a little bubble, but I mean, the call to get evidence across, you know, pretty much everything we do, I think is very, very important. Um, I also agree on that one. And I think here's the place where you have to collaborate more with different pharmacists, different um, you know, clinicians, uh, physicians, nurses, and trying to get the research and the translation type of research where you can prove really that this can improve the outcome or not. So one of also the studies similar to yours where we are looking currently at a SANE TTR score. This is a score that is used uh, or has been implemented by some uh, in order to find out who are the patients that could possibly be uh, you know, poorly controlled on warfarin and try uh, preemptively put them on a direct oral anticoagulants instead of putting them on warfarin. So one of our studies that we're currently doing with our students is to look at adding into that the pharmacogenetic component. So see if this could implement the same TTR score. So I think all these kind of pieces and bits, when you add them together, if we show that they can improve the outcome, eventually pharmacogenetics will be one of the most important things that we could do. You know, I, I want to ask you uh, about the test itself, because this is, I think, so, you know, we, we're starting to see companies pop up everywhere. One test is $500, another test is $99. Talk a little bit about the differences, why it's important to use a robust technology. I think the run-of-the-mill pharmacist that's thinking and dabbling in this area, they have to have an understanding before they just jump in. Um, again, this is one of the you know, places where you do need to have a lot of knowledge about is that the different types of testing, whether it has been done in a CLIA certified, sure. for example, lab, or whether this is just for research purpose. Uh, again, there is a lot of uh, robustness when you use, for example, CLIA certified labs because their techniques have been already uh, validated and has been shown to be have high sensitivity and mm -hmm. high specificity, which is a really important component because you don't want to give uh, false results, for example, to your patient and base your evidence or recommendation on that. So again, um, you know, like I understand there are like a lot of different companies, but again, you need to learn more about the different uh, methodologies used behind these testing, whether they have been certified, not certified. Sure. One of the other things too, especially when you're thinking a broad therapeutic area, and I, and I mean, for this to be applicable, especially in the community, you're not only gonna worry about, you know, warfarin, it's gonna, you know, it go across a lot of different disease states. And, and I mean, that's how we do it in practice in, in my uh, genetics clinic and my community pharmacy. But one of the other things is just the number of genes that the test is evaluating, and then the number of alleles as well. In uh, Toronto, we're in a really multi-ethnic, diverse kind of uh, population of patients. 
if you're looking at a really narrow kind of spectrum, you're going to miss patients for sure. I mean, it may not be as big of a deal if you're in a really homogeneous population, but I imagine Qatar with all these expatriates, the same thing. You're seeing a lot of different people, exactly right? Exactly the same. Yes, if you look at Qataris, they may have certain mutations or SNPs, single nucleotide yeah. polymorphisms that are unique to them or to Arab populations. But again, we do have about 2 million of expats coming from Asia, coming from Europe, Canada, United States, Australia. So again, you need to focus more on the very most common alleles sure. and mutations so that you can catch the majority of the patients. And then, yeah, and, uh, you know, so anyone, if, you know, if any of our pharmacists are listening now and they want to do this, the first, first thing you do is reach out to someone that's done and say, hey, I'm thinking of using this test over that test. What do you think? Get some opinions, because I think this is another area that's going to, it's going to explode. And I think if we're going to, if we're going to champion it, champion it, we got to make really good decisions with respect to the vendors we partner with, right? Yes, because you want it to be cost effective. And in order to do that, you want to make sure you use the right tests. You don't want to use a test that, you know, test for a certain uh, allele that is very rare and sure. you will probably not catch it except in one in a thousand that's or right. one hundred thousands. Do you see a time uh, and relatively soon where everyone's going to get one of these tests before we do anything? We hope so. Yeah. Uh, and again, this is one of our dreams to, mm -hmm. to start to see this clinically implemented. Uh, again, um, from uh, my clinical practice, from my research expertise, I've been seeing this happening more and more. And the advancement, of course, as well as even the pricing of uh, okay. the clinical uh, of the pharmacogenetic testing is getting lower and lower. So yep. this all going to add to that picture where eventually we're going to see this as a, one of the routine labs uh, that are done. The geneticists are telling me, uh, you know, this technology is evolving so quickly that in five years it's going to be pennies to do the actual testing. So the value will be in the consultation, right? Patients, they get these reports, they have no, and I've seen it, they get the reports, they come and they panic, they see all the different drugs listed, they're not even on 99% of the drugs, and they get worried when they see red, yellow. It really is about is the pharmacist able to sit with that patient, explain the results, and really make good clinical decisions. And, and it's, it's not going to happen in a bubble. You're going to have to collaborate with the physicians and everyone, everyone else. But what I'm finding from the physicians is they're buying in. It's taking some time. But, you know, we send back recommendations. First time, maybe we reach out to a doctor, like, Where, what is this? Where did you get this stuff from? But once they understand that, they're like, yeah, I mean, we're now empowered with something more than just our you know, uh, a blanket recommendation. We've got a, you know, a result here that's given us some, uh, some weight, I think, and that's important. It is very important indeed. And, and I think this is a very good opportunity for pharmacists sure. to get more and more trained on it. There is a lot of uh, ongoing uh, continuing education programs on pharmacogenetics and the clinical implementation of pharmacogenetics. And um, definitely this is a time to uh, start to get more active into the area. You know, we've had a chance to collaborate now internationally. I've learned a lot from you. I think um, you know, we're part of a group of pharmacists that do research uh, kind of globally. Um, how do we do more of this? And that's the challenge. I mean, we got to kind of impart this uh, on, our, on our students, I think, right? I think it is, uh, it requires a lot of collaboration, sure. uh, broad thinking. Um, right now is the best time to try to collaborate. And as you mentioned, like uh, our group of pharmacists uh, that are coming from all uh, over the world, different countries and trying to come together to improve the pharmacy practice and to collaborate on different things. And uh, one small example of that, for example, in Qatar, we tried to bring the three anticoagulation clinics together to, to build a network of anticoagulation in Qatar. And 
we have been successful actually to secure a very good grant looking at a registry on the use of direct order anticoagulants. So again, it's all about collaboration, collaborating nationally, collaborating internationally mm -hmm. to try to bring more data and you'll be able to get more evidence. Hey, you know, to our listeners, if you've never come to a FIP and it moves around, uh, I think next year we're in Abu Dhabi, so we'll be close to you and very I'm close. looking forward to that. But, you know, getting to EHP or some of these big international conferences, I mean, if you've never done it, it really opens up your eyes to like all the wonderful things being, you know, uh, conducted all over the world. But for me, it's the networking, be able to sit with you, be able to go grab a drink with, you know, someone from the UK or someone from Africa and just kind of, you know, just shooting ideas back and forth. Like I urge pharmacists, the cost is worth it. You'll get a ton out of it. The talks are awesome. And like you look at FIP, it's a broad range of talks. You literally could go to pretty much anything uh, throughout a day. And it's a long conference, it's like five days. Yes, yes. Uh, and I think really coming to these conferences is very important. I learned that when I was a PhD student at the beginning. I said, what is that? All, all that crowd? What are they here for? Yeah. But then I learned really that this is the opportunity to meet people, to learn new things, to get ideas about new research opportunities, education opportunities. This is the place to be. Yeah, we were going through the airport here in Glasgow when we landed and uh, uh, one of the customs guys is like, how many pharmacists are there? And I'm like, a lot. There's a ton here. I know I think this this conference, it's over 3,000, sometimes 4,000. Abu Dhabi, I'm looking forward to it. Never been to that part of the world. But I imagine we're going to get a different group of, of people coming to that. And that's what I find with FIP. Sometimes you get a lot of Europeans, depending where it is. Other times you get South Americans because they move it around. And it's just, uh, it's just a wonderful experience. So... Kind of maybe if you had, you know, one thing you would say to your students or students listening kind of uh, abroad, what's that one message that you'd say, you know, this is coming from, from you? Well, uh, I would say that never stop learning. I think the, the horizon is full of new things and, and new ideas to learn about. Try to always be active, learn more, um, get involved more. Uh, learn from other people as well. Sure. Mentors, mentors are important. On that note, uh, Hazem, thanks again. Uh, I look forward to seeing uh, how much traffic we get on this one. I think we're getting an international audience, but uh, I'll see you tonight. Thank you, John, for the opportunity. Awesome. This podcast was brought to you by IPAC, the International Pharmacist for Anticoagulation Task Force. Visit www.ipact.org for more information.